I worked as a waitress and I danced loads really drunk in nightclubs. All of that's in my work now. Looking back now, you could call it research, but actually I was fucking up a little bit, you know? Named after the Greek goddess of dance and chorus, and also an allusion to historian Sally Baines' seminal book on postmodern dance, Terpsichore and Sneakers, Terpsichore is a platform celebrating female dancers, choreographers, and bodies in motion, curated by me, dance critic and writer Emily May. Posting information, images, and videos of female dance pioneers, both past and present, on a daily basis on our Instagram account, Terpsichore has now started its very own podcast, where I will be interviewing leading women from the dance industry about their lives, careers, and the female artists that have inspired them. For the seventh episode, I'm so excited to welcome the amazing Una Doherty to the podcast. Una is a Northern Irish choreographer based in Belfast. After training at London Contemporary Dance School, the University of Ulster and Laban, she worked with several companies across Europe before returning to Northern Ireland to focus on creating her own choreographic work. Her award-winning pieces have included Hope Hunt and The Ascension into Lazarus, which explored archetypes of masculinity, Hard to be Soft, A Belfast Prayer, a continuation of Hope Hunt which explores the toughness of Una's hometown and the people who populate it, and most recently Lady Magma, The Birth of a Cult, which focused on feminism and female sexuality. This year, Una has been announced as the recipient of the coveted Silver Line Award at the Venice Biennale Danza. I thought this was a great opportunity to speak to Una about her exciting career thus far, her choreographic style and motivations, and her plans for the future. Well, hi Una, thank you so much for joining us today on the Terpsichore podcast. How are you doing and where are you speaking to us from? I'm doing good. I'm talking to you from Bangor, County Down in Northern Ireland, from my lockdown house, like everybody, I suppose. Well, thank you so much for joining us, as I said. And I just wanted to kick off straight away with asking you a question going right back to the beginning and just asking you what some of your first experiences of dance were and how you first became interested in dance as an art form. So the first memory I have of dancing would be that my brother bought the cassette tape of Michael Jackson's Dangerous and we put the tape on in the house and kind of got up and danced and I remember my mum being like to my brother do what your sister's doing and that's maybe the first thing I remember being like I'm class at dancing, you know, when we were like seven. And then when I went to secondary school in Belfast, so what age are you there, 10, 11? There was an after-school club of like dancing and we had to improvise to the CD of like the Cats soundtrack, you know, the musical. And I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) I'm home. (laughs) Actually, before that, maybe whenever I was a kid in London, I used to watch, you know, like Big Cat Diary, like kind of like an animal program and would just crawl around the house and pretend to be an animal. So that's maybe why I felt like I was made for Cats the musical. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. And you mentioned that because at first you lived in London, but then you moved to Belfast. What was the experience of growing up in Northern Ireland? Because I think, didn't you move there before the peace process happened? Friday, Good Friday Agreement, 96 or something, I guess I moved there. Well, before we moved there, we would go to Belfast, like kind of most summers to visit my granny and stuff. I think when we were younger and we went on summer holidays, I remember my granny lived up the back of Lenadoon in West Belfast, so there would be more like RUC vans. And I remember maybe seeing some soldiers with guns and stuff, but you're so young, you don't really 
like have a context for it and then when we moved over we were more like it's more like just getting used to the different accent it felt like a different language and the kids played in the street more than they would in London and kind of cultural differences rather than a political one if you know what I mean I do remember it must have been the Good Friday Agreement and I was in a taxi going to the swimmers and on the mountain Black Mountain they had written in stone huge on the mountain Ulster says yes I guess to the Good Friday Agreement, which I now know what it was, but when I was a kid in the taxi, I was like, oh, cool, someone's made a massive graffiti. I do remember kind of people, some kids kind of shouting at us and calling us Protestants because we had English accents. And we were like, no, we go to a Catholic school. Being English and being Protestant was the same thing. And they couldn't differentiate the two or something. And so you said you started like dancing more at a club at school. How did you kind of progress to realising that it was something you wanted to kind of go and train in and make your career? Honestly, like straight away, my dance teacher in school was really good. And I was really into dance. So kind of by like the second week, I was like, I'm going to be a dancer and I'm going to be a choreographer. And then I just didn't change my mind. And so once you kind of say that to your teacher, your teacher's like, right, well, you can be in the A-level choreography. Here, you do your GCSE, you do this. And I was never really good at anything else, really. So pretty much from 11, I was like, I'm going to do it. And then you, you went to train at the place in London initially, didn't you? How did you end up settling on that school? It just kind of had an air about it that it was like a bit more fancier. It was harder to get into and my dance teacher and my dad and everyone did say to me you don't really suit the place i think you should go to the lab and suits your style of dancing more but there was a thing of like if you get into the place you're a bit better but they were right it didn't suit me because it's a bit more balletic and they're into cunningham and i hate that style of dancing so i only lasted a year or two and then i believe yeah and then you because i read in another interview that you you left the place and then had a period when you weren't dancing before you started studying again at Laban and then in Northern Ireland. Do you think that this period of not dancing was quite important, like having this break? Oh, definitely. I worked as a waitress and I danced loads just to, like really drunk in nightclubs. It went a bit mad. All of that's in my work now. So it's almost yeah. a period of research almost without knowing it. Looking back now, you can call it research, but actually I was fucking up a little bit, you know, but your mistakes are there in your body. Whatever you end up doing, it's going to be in the choreography, I'd say, you know, and I was like raving to minimal techno. So that's what's, that's the residue that's been left. <laughs> and so then after you finished your degree in Laban and then Ulster, I know you went on to go and dance with Trash in the Netherlands. How did you discover this company and why did you want to go and dance with them? Well, I was really lucky. Just There was just another girl in transitions at the Laban who was on the ball and was like looking for auditions. I wasn't really so organised as that, you know, I was just kind of going through paces. So she kind of presented the audition to the, the class and was like, these guys are holding an audition, let's go. So we were like, yeah, and I didn't bother to look at the company. I didn't bother to find anything out about them. I just went to the audition, but we were really lucky we got in. So I don't think it, I, I was like attracted to trash or anything. I, I, was a, I wasn't as organized as that. I just showed up and I got it. But then I stayed with them for four years. So they taught me like a lot of what I know, you know, they're kind of like my dance mother and father. Because at Trash, you've got Guillaume was at Trash, Guillaume Miotto, who's a Dutch choreographer. And he kind of physically trained us, you know, and pushed you further than you've ever been before. Teach you how to work with pain. And Crystal, 
taught you how to like you know she would be making collages about like strange david lynch films and cronenberg films and how does that influence the work so you've got this kind of cinematic theater from crystal and then hardcore dancing from Guy, kind of punk so yeah they teach you to like push it to the limit but that's why i left in the end because i was like jesus i'm exhausted <laughs> But didn't you dance with some other people around Europe as well? I did a little one. I got one gig with Abattoir Fermé because Abattoir Fermé is actually a Belgian theatre company. So they've got one show that doesn't have any words in it because I don't speak Flemish. So I was in their silent play, but I couldn't really do any more work with them if I don't speak Flemish. So I did that because they had this silent play called Tourniquet that was kind of a slow motion, black and white, romantic Nazi thing going on. And the person who used to play my role was this big, huge man who gets naked, drunk on stage, and then murders the woman. But because Steph from Abattoir Fermé is so creative, instead of replacing the big, chunky, middle-aged man with another middle-aged man, he was like, put Una in the same role, like a wee skinny white girl. Abattoir Fermé, they're an amazing company. They're so good, do all their own posters and everything. I really loved working with them, but it's a theatre company, so there's only so far you can go with it, you know? That's quite interesting you saying about this replacing the middle-aged man with you, because that's almost similar with Hope Hunt, uh, your solo, that you ended up dancing it. But we'll get to that a little bit later, because uh, I just wanted to ask you about, after being in Europe for quite a while with Trash, how did you end up moving back to Northern Ireland? Why did you decide to go back i think why did i move back i think i was having a bad time i think i think that's why i moved back i also just got to the point with a company where you know when if the choreographer says to you and then now you just do your thing because they know you so well i think sometimes you can reach a limit with the relationship because they know all your moves and you know what they're into so to get something a bit fresh and I think I was just really tired. It's really hardcore dancing. I don't think I was being very healthy at the time. And I just moved home, I think. Then that's when I started making my own stuff. Because I moved home and I went back to Echo Echo in Derry. The Echo Echo company. And the director of Echo Echo is called Steve Batts. And he does a little festival. And he kind of dared me. He was like, why are you dancing for everyone else? I dare you to make your own solo. So I was like, fine, Steve, I will. And that's how you ended up making Hope Hunt. Well, Hope Hunt came a little bit later. I made like two kind of versions the first thing i ever made every time i tried to make a dance i was like that's trash that's not me because i've been with the company for four years so i made this solely where i just stood still on the stage and i shouted ga 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 get out of it get out of it and i started doing this phonetic shouting which is in the hope hunt because i didn't know how to dance anymore and so that's from that solo that's where hope hunt and everything came from you know was using like language and, and speech in in your choreography was that something that you started doing at trash or how did you end up started working with voice started with trash there was a solo in what show was it Eidenstrasse, a one-way street that we did with trash and i had shaved my hair and i was super skinny and me and crystal came up with this character with a white vest that kind of had this communist workers vibe to it and I came out with this skinhead with a wheelbarrow and I started moving with this phonetic because me and Crystal had always really been into the the choreography of an Ian Curtis fifth on stage that kind of ah, phonetics so I guess the vocal seed started with the wheelbarrow solo in trash then when I left trash I made a pure vocal solo because I didn't know how to move anymore 
and then I started working of how to do movement with the phonetic sounds and stuff and I guess that's where Hope Hunt came from. And so I'm interested as well because Hope Hunt focuses on this idea of archetypal working class males. What was it that interested you about portraying this archetypal character on stage? Because they're also, they're not necessarily someone that's often portrayed in a theatre context or a contemporary dance context. So what, what interested you in that? It grew itself. I think when we were first making Hope Hunt, I don't think I can own that. I, I don't didn't consciously be like, here's the political we're going to do like about working class men. It wasn't as like organised as that. I was making the solo on my friend, Neil Brown, who's from Glasgow, who's about the same age as me, a couple of years older. So we were kind of just being a bit reminiscent and like nostalgic about when we were in school, which would have been like 90s and coin rings and the haircuts and the way that the lads in Belfast are similar to the lads in Glasgow. So we were making a solo for him and Neil is also very good at accents. So he started doing that character in different accents, which brought up the idea of, okay, that lad in Germany, that lad in Glasgow, that lad in Czech. So we were kind of doing that. That's where the E17 track and all came from because we were being reminiscent of our own childhood in school. And then it's only later when Neil had to take another job and I did the role. I was just doing Neil's job and it's the way they write about it afterwards other people more like art critics will be like oh what she's doing is masculinity working classness and then you start reading reviews like that and going oh right okay um oh I think that means I'm supposed to be a socialist choreographer and then I don't know how much kind of filters in and then you start making work a bit in that direction or pointed in that area because uh, arty people have written about you like that oh I'm supposed to be like doing working class people <gasps> When are they going to find out that I'm really posh middle class and I went to dance school? Shit. Then you get this kind of problem. And the more I learned about it, it became very problematic. Because the reality of Hope Hunt is that you're going to go to a fancy art festival and do it. So there's a there's a big problem about like kind of proudly saying you're doing a working class show if you're not going to go to working class places to show it. That leads well on to something that I wanted to ask you because I know that you've toured it. Was it Hope Hunt you toured in prison? We've been trying to tour Hope Hunt in prison since day one and we've managed to do two prisons so far and that's since 2015. So majority it's toured in like art venues to the bourgeois, you know. I mean, I'm calling myself the bourgeois too, you know, that kind of who goes to watch contemporary dance and galleries and stuff. And we've done one or two prisons, but yeah, that's that takes time. You can't just show up to a prison and do a show and then leave, you know, because then you're just kind of flexing, you know. Yeah, what good is it to the boys in the prison if you go and be like, look at me dancing and then you leave? That's no use to them, (laughs) you know. What was the experiences like of the two times you did it? Did you get much feedback from the people you performed to? Or The first time we did it, when we did it in Hydebank Prison in Belfast, was the best gig I think we've ever done, really. It was amazing. They shout back. You know, they don't be silent. So when you go in, the deafening companion, one of them goes, I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. You know, and they cheer for you. You know, and they're involved in it. And then afterwards, you're like, what do you think the show was about? And they're like, it's about getting high. It's about your mates. It's about being lonely. Bang, bang, bang. I know exactly what you're doing. It's class. Good luck. Fuck off. Oh, they were brilliant. Like, and you you do a jump on the floor and they, they joke with you. And they're like, I can do that while you're rolling around on the floor. Like, they're engaged, which you which I've got once in one theatre in Luzanne where people would stamp their feet and it was all the kids from the dance school. So they were like, yeah. But usually you go to a theatre and if they love it, it's silent. They don't do anything, you know. 
which is then so hard as a performer, I guess, to like gauge how it went or what people's reaction were if people just uh, sat there and not saying anything. Oh no, I think you can still gauge because they clap blows at the end. You can tell from their face if they're into it and all. But there's the theatre has its own like rules and stuff and etiquette, which is not always the most exciting. True. And then so you ended up developing Hope Hunt into a further full-length piece, which is uh, Hard to be Soft, a Belfast prayer. How was it using something that you'd already worked with and then developing it into an even longer show? Well, it just happened naturally because I think what happens to me is I do a show and then when the show's finished and has toured a little bit, I then realise, oh... What I was trying to say was this. You kind of have to live in the show for a little bit to be like, oh, this is a clearer way to say what I'm trying to say, you know? Because at the beginning, you're just trying to make the thing. And then when the thing's made and you live in it, then the thing itself teaches you the clarity of its own language. But Hope Hunt is like that particular lad all over Europe and Hard to be Soft is like, no, not the rest of Europe. This is Belfast. And these are all the other things of that, what built that lad in Belfast. That lad's dad, that lad's mum, his wee sister in school school and it was at the other context of um, the disadvantaged youth is the way they write about it or whatever you know but then I also realized like hard to be soft like it's good no but I got scared then when hard to be soft did well because of Brexit and all and the way it gets written about like it did so well in France and I was like why is it doing so well in France and is that because it's easy for French arty people to be like Oh, poor Belfast. Poor aggressive people in Belfast. So I don't know, everything you do has a kind of a strange problem once you sell it because you've you've sold it then and there's something tainted about it then because then you've used it and it's kind of like, oh... Yeah, I don't know if that's really morally good and all, I don't know. What was it you say, because it developed out of Hope Hunt and you said you were kind of clearer about what you wanted to say, what exactly what was it that you wanted to say with Hard To Be Soft? I think what I'm trying to say is that like the, the images, like when you first look at them on the surface look like aggression and they look like working class and they look like dangerous actually when you look a bit closer are full of fear and full of love I think is what I'm trying to say. In Hard To Be Soft there's more people performing and not just you so there's a father and son duet and a group of teenage girls called the Sugar Army. Was this one of the first times you choreographed on a larger group of people rather than just yourself and if so what was that like to choreograph on a larger cast? Yeah it was my first um, show that's not a solo yeah it was the first time I choreographed on a group of people and it was doable because it was in episodes so I didn't have them all in the room at one time I don't think I'd be able to handle that still don't know if I'm very good at handling that so I kind of I separately went off and worked with the Sugar Army I separately went off and worked with the duet and I separately went and did the solo so that made it a bit more manageable the sugar, the very first Sugar Army was super intimidating and complicated because I didn't just go in and choreograph from scratch I sampled Annika Graham, so she runs a school company here called Ajayan Dance, who do everything, ballet, hip-hop, street, all different types, and it's kind of young folk who go and do those competitions and run, you know, work in the company. So I asked her, could I sample, you know the way musicians would sample music, can I sample your world championship routine and give me the team? And my plan was to give them the headsets 
and get them to do their world championship routine but the audience would hear a different soundtrack that was the original idea the headset thing didn't work out she was like just re-choreograph it and they'll dance to your music but then that's really complicated because the the original timing seven and eight and you've only got a string over the top of it and so trying to kind of calculate that but once that first routine was set with the big help of of her dances of annika then all the other sugarami's i could just be like now we learn the routine and it was simpler from then on but those first sugars like built that dance for me because i'd never done a group dance and i was like what count are we on guys and they're like una please let us sort it out over on the left hand side right hand side because that kind of mathematical we need three people on this side three people on that side spatial patterning i put my hand up i'm not very good at it that type of choreograph and i struggle with like and when you have good dancers to be like she needs to move over the left it really helps you know so the sugars made the dance really you know and as you mentioned there so in different places you've toured you've had different sugar armies and work with different young girls do you enjoy working with young people and choreographing with young people it's the best part of the show to be honest when i first made it the plan was not to work with lots of sugar armies because the show is about belfast so my plan was to bring those young girls around europe what a brilliant thing you get paid and you're in a company and you go on tour and everyone should see the Belfast girls was my argument. But the producer was like, so it's so complicated to bring kids around on tour with you and it's going to cost a fortune. Why don't you work with kids in the country that you go to? Which I was a bit miffed off about, to be, to be honest, at the beginning. But actually, it's the best thing about the show. And that's Una Nikon from Prime Cut came up with that idea. And it's the best thing, like going to meet all these. And the differences between the Berlin sugars and the Paris sugars and the, and the Edinburgh sugars, like, man, they're so... And my dream then is also to bring all the sugar armies together and do a massive army, which I still haven't been able to do yet, just finding money and organising paperwork for that kind of thing. But I do leave every sugar, every sugar army team promising that they'll get to meet the others, and I haven't, I haven't finished my promise to them yet, which is a bit annoying. Because then if you don't, go back and get them to meet everyone, then you're just using them, you know? This year I'm going to have an Italian sugar army. So I'll have Italian, I'll have Edinburgh, I'll have Berlin, I'll have Paris, and I'll have Belfast. I've got five already, and there's nearly ten girls in each group. Like, that's an army. We just need Spain now. Just need Spain, and then you've got a 60s strong army. Yeah. Talking of working with, like, groups of women and girls, your latest show, Lady Magma, The Birth of a Cult, that was also an all-female cast and explored female sexuality and the rhythm of female orgasms. How did you get into that topic as something to explore choreographically? The mother of Lady Magma was a sugar army, I think, from going around Europe and working with these girls and kind of showing them feminist movies and artworks and being like, what do you want this dance? to be about why you're doing it is what led me down that kind of feminist route as well and so then that's yeah that's where magma came from basically but like a magma then has its all its own problems so i went down this 1970s aesthetic how do i make it look like a 1970s cigarette advert but actually it's really pagan and it's really wild and then we were dancing to Max Roach kind of drum solos and we were like black music was a big inspiration and all this was going on and it wasn't until I bloody finished the show well halfway through the show actually I was like oh, I've hired my friends 
and all my friends are white skinny dancers. And actually, the 1970s feminist movement was in op like opposition to the civil rights movement. And I've just re fucking repeated it with a load of white girls doing feminism to black music. So there's a massive failure in magma. And I was really worried when the premiere was on in Paris because I was just waiting. It was all reviewers and I was like, one of them's going to say it. They're going to say it. There's no colour. There's no colour. Oh my God. Oh my God. And you know what they wrote about? Nobody mentioned the colour problem. And the first reviewer said that the girls were fat and they talked about the size of the girls' thighs. And I got so excited and angry at the same time because I was like, this is perfect because I've been writing magma essays. So I called the reviewer out and I said, let's do an open conversation in public about why you wrote that and where that's coming from and what you think a dancer should look like because this is all part of magma and because she writes for a paper she wasn't able to engage in a public conversation with me for it so it left and I thought that was amazing to go to Paris and nobody mentioned that I had just repeated the stuff in the 70s and they thought that the girls weren't skinny enough and I was like fucking look where we are look where we are it's crazy. And with with realising that, is that something, would you like to go back and like revisit the piece and, and make changes or? I'm not sure. I'm totally lost of what to do because I don't want to be tokenistic. And the girls who are in the show are fabulous and they're amazing and they're there for their dancing. And I don't want to be like, OK, next time we're going to do it, I'm going to hire one Asian dancer and one black dancer girls to make myself feel better. I don't know what to do yet, but I think it's part of my job as a choreographer now to kind of always think about all those things and are you being tokenistic? And I think I had to go through Hope Hunt, Hard to Be Soft and Magma to actually realise that a little bit. I think I was just, oh, I got funding, I'm going to make a show. And I don't think I thought about those things before. No, but it's really interesting. In Lady Magma, you're not in it either. What made you decide to have it so being an outsider? I'm not in Hard To Be Soft either, really. When Hard To Be Soft was made, I did the very first little solo bit because it was the end of Hope Hunt and it was the opening of the new show. But then the rest of the show I'm not in. And it should be Ryan O'Neill doing the beginning and the end. But all the producers kind of pushed that I should be in it more. And so that's not a creative choice that I'm in Hard To Be Soft. That was me just doing what I was told. And maybe it's good. And I love dancing it and that's grand. But I was already in Hard To Be Soft trying to leave the stage. You've done a few works that can be performed outside. So I know that Hope Hunt starts off outside the theatre. And then Lady Magma can also be performed in outdoor venues. How do you think that the piece changes depending on where it's performed? What's it like when it's outside? Oh man, so Lady Magma outside is like a hundred times better. The theatre almost suffocates that show. Because if you're talking about Dionysus, Bacchus, paganism, we give everybody red wine. All of the dancers have a bit of red wine before they go on stage. We light the incense. It's all about, you know, like... The cult. When once you go into the black box, everyone starts to behave themselves. And whether you like the show or you don't like the show, you're gonna sit there and not say anything. But if you're in the woods and you've had like a couple of drinks and maybe you've had a spliff, you might react differently to magma. And that's where it should be. And Hope Hunt has been touring outside now for COVID. We don't even we get out of the car, we dance in the street, and then we just do the whole thing in the street, and that works great because usually you get a few people walking past the back of the stage or having a look. 
And then it just makes everything kind of hilarious in Hope Pump because you can get kids shouting and stuff. So I don't know, maybe outside's better for dance sometimes, you know? Definitely in terms of like when you're saying that if you're performing in the theatre, often you just get the same audiences. Whereas if you're outside, you can often attract new people that might walk past it. And it's not just the same people seeing all the time. So that's a good thing about COVID, eh? Is that we'll have to try and push that a bit more. And I think it'll help the art. And also I thought it was really great during uh, Sadler's Wells Festival, Dancing Nation, it was such a nice change to because sitting behind and watching so much dance in theatres and recording theatres it was so nice then when Hope Hunt came on and it was in a different location and it was so different to all the other pieces and then you get to see a bit of Belfast which is nice when we're all just stuck in our rooms to see life somewhere else. Oh that wasn't the prime location I had another way more interesting location as a backdrop for that film that would have been like really nice you know it's kind of an old brutalist car park that doesn't get used anymore oh it would have been so lovely but it was kind of filmed bang in the middle of like proper lockdown so you have to make you know decisions on the spot and everyone needs a mask and you need to have space so we needed to make it safe so that was a pretty safe space that you could play the music and nobody would complain and stuff like that are you working on anything at the minute? Obviously, I know you're super busy because you've just become a mother and also it's lockdown, so it's very difficult. But is there anything that you're working on coming up? I read on your website, I think, that you have a piece with the working title Navy. Navy Blue we're working on, yeah. Navy Blue should have its premiere next year in August at Camp Nagel. What I'm trying to do, let's see what happens, is have like 12 dancers on stage. Like that'd be the biggest one I've done yet. What am I doing with Navy? I don't know if I can give the game away. I won't give the game away yet. That should be next August that premieres and then goes on tour. So far, let's see how things go. That's the plan. So I'm kind of working on that. I'm also working on like versions, like these new mutated versions of Hope Hunt because we have lots of different Hope Hunt dancers now too. We've got Mufasa does it and Sati performs Hope Hunt. So what we're going to try and do at the 180 Strand in London for Art Night, I have an exhibition called The Death of a Hunter where we put like a basically a car crash in the gallery. And inside the car crashes like a speaker with sound that I've made, like holy music, kind of like Lazarus music from the sh- from the end of the show. And we put spotlights on it. You know the way they film Marks and Spencer's food really slow. It's not just food; it's M and S food. But we do that with a car crash, basically. So we're gonna try and film that plus the opening of Hope Hunt with three different performers, plus Lazarus with three different performers, plus a kind of DJ Ketterman solo thing. So I've started to take all bits of loads of old shows and then mangle them together in little cinematic film things. So hopefully that should happen in June, which will be really cool. Amazing. And then obviously talking about this year, you've been awarded the Silver Lion at the Venice Dance Biennale. When did you find out and what was your reaction when you heard? Oh my God. Tell you how I found out, right? Is like, if you're a dancer, like everyone's known about Wayne McGregor, like since the beginning. Like I knew about Wayne McGregor when I was dancing in school. Like that's how famous Wayne McGregor is, right? And then Neil Brown, who was the original Hope Hunter, left me to go and work for Wayne McGregor, right? <laughs> so Wayne McGregor's always had this thing in my head of like, he's kind of the most, apart from Akram, he's like one of the most famous, big, fat companies going, you know? That white studio that he's got, it's very technology, science, big, tall, skinny dancers. I'd had always Wayne McGregor on this pedestal. I went to a Wayne McGregor audition many years ago in the Royal Ballet School and Wayne McGregor, I remember me and him 
laughing at each other in the audition because I had to just leave. Like the dancers were up to here. I could see through the gap, the hole in their thighs. You know, I look like a clown at a random audition because it's a different type of body, you know? So I thought Wayne McGregor had always been in my head of this, like the big guy. And then I had a, me I had, um, a DM from him on Instagram and I freaked out. And I called all my friends, Wayne McGregor's just messaged me. Wayne McGregor's just messaged me. And he just said, can I give you a call? So I freaked out for like three days before I replied. I was like, yes, no problem. You can ring me. So afraid. Because I was also afraid that he would say, do you want to dance? And I was pregnant and I couldn't dance. But then I finally answered the phone and I spoke to Wayne and he's completely normal. And he's just like a dancer from England. And he's just, oh my God, I'm all busy. I'm in charge of Venice and I'm going to give you the silver lion. And it was just, I don't know, it was just amazing. So I can't wait to meet him, you know, because it's like meeting someone famous. You know, they've been in your life for a long time. Like, it'd be like meeting Akram Khan or something. It's like, you're meeting someone big, important, you know? It'll be mad. I remember when we did Hard To Be Soft and Dance Umbrella in London. We did it in the South Bank. And someone came down just before the show went on and said, Akram Khan is coming to the show. And I freaked out. I was like, where's my yoga mat? Oh, my God. And I ran into the Sugar Army from London who were from the Brit school. And I was like, girls! Akram Khan is coming tonight, get warming up now. And half of the Sugar Armies went, oh my God, Akram Khan. And the other half on their phones were like, who the fuck's Akram Khan, <laughs> you know? And that just shows you, but like, and I never got to meet him, but I know that he was there in the room, which is like, makes you dance like 200%, you know, you're like, bah, bah, bah. Did you know when Wayne was watching? Did you know the times when he's come to see your work? No, I don't know. I don't know if he has seen it. I think maybe he could just see things online. When he rang me, like, he had read the whole website and I was like, oh my God, like, Wayne McGregor's reading my Wix website. I need to sort my life out. <laughs> so, no, I don't know. Jesus. You don't know who could be in the audience. Like, you never know. I can't believe these famous people. So amazing. And so talking about people that you'd like to meet, I have one last question for you, which I ask everyone when I'm interviewing them. And because this, with this podcast, we focus on interviewing leading women from the dance industry I wanted to ask you if you could meet and talk to any female dance practitioner from history or now they could be dead or alive who would it be and why god and this is really bad because I know there's loads of cool people that I'm missing out I'm gonna go for a really annoying answer because they're a bit too famous but I don't know that many choreographers and I would go for I know it's really annoying but I'm gonna say Graham Martha Graham because I think she's probably a bitch and she's probably really annoying, but I'm, I don't know. She's just so emotional when she dances. Like, I wouldn't be a fan of Cunningham, okay? That's just like, you know, it's too mathematical. I can't do that. Nobody's laughing, nobody's crying. They're just moving. I can't handle it. Makes me think of Black Mirror. But Graham, who's like, oh my God, I'm feeling this. Oh my God, I'm feeling that. Like, I'm into that. So I would, I would meet Graham maybe just because she's an emotional wreck like me. <laughs> is there anything you'd want to ask her i'd probably be too scared i'd say she's probably really mean what would i ask graham i'd maybe ask her does she really think the dance is healing because i think it can heal yourself and the people in the room like a shaman and like how far down that line would she go would you know how how deep is the shamanism amazing well thank you so much una it's been really great to talk to you today okay yeah thank you I hope you enjoyed the sixth episode of the Terpsichore podcast with the amazing Una Doherty. If you would like to find out more about Una's work, follow her on Instagram, check out her website, 
www.unadahityweb.com or head over to the Venice Biennale's website to read about why she was selected as the recipient of this year's Silver Lion Award. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could subscribe and leave us a rating and review, as it helps other people to find us. You can also follow Terpsichore Mag on Instagram, or sign up to our newsletter via our website, www.terpsichore-mag.com. Thank you so much again for listening to the Terpsichore Podcast with me, Emily May.